0: How many times and maybe when is the last time you said this sentence? Lord, I am never going to do that again. I will never do that again. Never again am I going to blow up at my wife or my kids. Never again am I going to go to that internet site. Never again am I going to gossip about my coworker or my neighbor so that I might look good. Never again am I going to give in to the fear of man as you change your opinion or your conviction on something so that it sounds a little more culturally cool. You been there? Maybe I should say, how many times have you been there? Maybe when's the last time you were there? Because there's something inside of us, right, as the people of God who bear the name of God that knows that we are His witnesses, that we carry Him around with us and we represent Him to the world around us. And we know that that's important and we want to do that well. But we are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. The biblical word for witness is found throughout this passage seven times. But it's not always translated witness, sometimes it's translated evidence or uh, statement or testimony. But it's all the same, and it's all where we get our word, our English word, martyr from. The word martyr in our kind of common use now, of course, means someone who gives their life, who is killed for their beliefs or their convictions or their cause. And the, being the, idea, the idea of being Jesus' witness is to represent, to testify t- with your words and your actions to the authority, the glory, the kingship of Jesus in the face of whatever it might cost you, whether that's your popularity, your reputation, your job, your coolness, or even your own kingship where you get to decide what is right and what is wrong. And the reality is is every single day, pretty much every single moment, you are on trial in a sense. There are no off days of being his witnesses. You are his witness because you bear his name. And yet we all have off days, if we put it mildly. Because no matter how great you are at representing Christ, you will fall short. And as we saw last week as Jake walked through an earlier part of Mark 14, Jesus knows that. He's not caught off guard by that. Last week, we saw kind of part one, and this is kind of a two-part sermon that follows Jesus and Peter into Jesus the hours before Jesus' crucifixion. Last week, Jake walked through the passage that starts with Jesus predicting to his disciples, "You will all fall away. You will all fail at representing me at being my witnesses. Not me. Peter chimes in, the spokesman for the group. God bless Peter. I love him so much. Actually, Jesus says, you're going to crash and burn in such an epic fashion. You're not going to just deny me. You're going to deny me three times in just a few hours. Not a chance. Not even if I die for you will I do that. And everyone else in the room said the exact same thing. And almost as a little test for them, Jesus takes the disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane and asks them to do something very simple. Stay awake and pray for one hour. A little test of what they just said. Jesus, I'll do anything you ask me to do. I will represent you. I will do everything you say. Stay awake for an hour and pray. And they can't do that. They come back. He, Jesus comes back and they're passed out. They came to stay awake for an hour then Jesus, a moment of his arrest comes, and they all scatter just like he said. And we even saw at the end that one man was in such a hurry to be away from Jesus that a guy grabbed his shirt, he ran out of his shirt, and sprinted naked away because he wanted to be away from Jesus that bad. They all ran, but Peter didn't run quite as far. We saw in verse 53 that Jackie just read that they took Jesus, this arresting group takes Jesus, verse 53, to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and teachers of the law came together, because there is nothing that brings all these factions who hated each other together like a common enemy, right? They all want to take Jesus down. But verse 54 tells us that Peter followed them at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, And there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Because Peter wants really badly to do what he just promised a few hours ago. He wants really badly to be true to his word, to represent Jesus well, to stay true to what he said, that all will run away, but I will not. And he's trying really, really hard. He goes right into the courtyard of the high priest, which is not in the middle of the night like a common hideout or hangout place. Like he there's no place for him to hide. He's sitting at the fire with a bunch of the guards who just brought Jesus in. He's taking a risk to be there, isn't he? He's trying his best to keep his word. And at this point, the story diverges into the story of two trials. Two trials, one of Jesus' trial and one of Peter's trial. And the way that Mark writes this introduction, joining their stories to start and then diverging them is meant for us to see these two things happening at the same time. And he puts them in stark contrast to one another. Mark starts with Jesus' trial, which out of the gate starts off really fishy, right? There is, uh, there is not a, a, a flat baseline. There's no like, well, let's see what things, let's see how things are. We don't really know. No, these people had an agenda. The Sanhedrin came together with one goal. We see it in 55. They were looking for evidence against Jesus because they wanted to kill him. We've actually seen this for several chapters. They're looking for witnesses, and so they start to bring false witnesses forward, and yet nothing stuck to Jesus. Their case crumbles, and he doesn't have to say a word. Even the high priest stands up and is like, Jesus, are you going to to answer these these testimonies, these evidence, these witnesses that are coming against you? And it says, verse 61, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. And it's his silence that is the most stunning thing in this whole passage to me. No self defense, no working towards self preservation. And if you don't know how amazing that is, just think about your week. How quick are you to self defend? It's like my reflex. If I feel as though justice is not being told in this story for me, to my benefit, I mean, I can't keep my mouth shut. i got to jump in and kind of correct that and defend myself in such a way that just kind of balances a little more in my favor, not actual neutral, just in my favor. I even do that when I'm wrong. How do you, how do you tell your stories when you're in a conflict with your family member or uh, a, a coworker or something? Because I make sure that my little insult, my... my <laughs> epic insult, whatever I've said or done that's terrible, is always couched as just this little, you know, I probably could have had a little more self-control. But whatever little thing they say to me is life-changing. And how could they do that? That's That's self-preservation. That's a reflex that I have, where I just want to make sure that I'm defending myself so I look and feel good about where things are at their expense. And what does Jesus do? He remains silent In fact, if he had spoken up, he would have shut the whole room up in a moment because he has done that every single time. Over and over again over the last couple chapters, we've had the religious leaders coming at Jesus trying to pin him in, and they can't touch him. And every time he answers, he either uses like taekwondo and like answers it back in a way that turns the question back on them, and they're silent. And the crowd loves it. And the people who came to interrogate him feel stupid and they stopped asking him questions, the Bible said. Because they just look dumb every single time. And here they're bringing false witnesses and they can't even get their stories together. Like, y'all had a chance to corroborate your stories and you couldn't even do that well enough to pin him. But yet Jesus' silence is a way of demonstrating his very acceptance of his fate. That his pending death sentence was actually part Of the will and plan that before time began, our triune God put into existence. And it's a plan that required Jesus to stay silent in the face of his accusers. Isaiah 53, speaking as prophecy hundreds of years earlier, speaking of the one they called the suffering servant, is described as this that he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and like sheep before the shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Except for one time in this scene. And it's when the high priest asked him a direct question, are you the Messiah, verse 61, the son of the blessed one? Which again is another question that Jesus has dodged the entire ministry. Even when someone comes out and says, you're the Messiah, right? What does he say to him? don't tell anybody, it's not my time. Shh. Or he dodges the question. He doesn't want to answer this question until here, because he knows that his time has come. And he addresses the question head on directly. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And in his answer, he takes a couple of Old Testament prophecies from Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, and he mashes them together to effectively say this I will come in glory, in the glory of God, and judge the world. Whoa. That's a high claim. That is a claim to be God. It's amazing that the only thing that condemns Jesus is the truth. who he really is. And don't miss the irony here. The judge of the universe is standing where? On trial. As the judge? No, as the defendant. That the judge of all the earth, the one who should be making the judgments, is being judged and condemned by the world. And if he is the judge and we were the ones to stand before him, all of scripture and our own experience as human beings knows that we're in big trouble, that we deserve the condemnation. You see, the entire time, what Jesus is demonstrating here is there's one person who's in clear authority in this room. And it's not the high priest and it's not the Sanhedrin, it's Jesus. He chooses to stay silent, he's in full control. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, just a few hours before this takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus looks at his, his followers who want to pull out swords and start slashing. Cuts off a guy's ear. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. I'm just going to throw that out there. He takes out a sword and starts sword and starts slashing away. And Jesus goes, well, put that away. Don't you know that I could call my Father and he would send thousands of angels to destroy them in a second. But then how would scriptures... Be fulfilled to say it must happen this way. Our salvation hinges on Jesus' silence. Our hope hinges on Jesus choosing to remain silent when he is being falsely accused. Because if he spoke to defend himself, to save his own life, he would damn us and our fate would be doomed. But Jesus came willingly was wrongly condemned because there's something far greater going on here. There's something cosmic at stake. That Jesus came into this world not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And in order to save it, he must surrender his own life. He came to be the perfect substitute for sinners, to take our sin on himself. So was Jesus condemned rightly or wrongly? It's actually a really complicated question. In being our sin bearer, he was condemned, not because he did something wrong, but because he willingly took on our punishment. This is why Isaiah 53, that passage that earlier talked about, the suffering servant being the one who is silent when he's accused, two verses before that says that he is pierced for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that brings us peace was put onto him, and it's because of his wounds that you and I can be healed. Our freedom from the power of sin, our forgiveness from all of our sins past, present, and future is all because Jesus chose to stay silent until the moment he confesses who he is and he acknowledges I am and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming on the clouds and with Jesus' declaration chaos erupts in the room. The high priest tears his clothes. There is chaos. There is no order in the court. And Jesus is condemned of blasphemy. He's worthy of death in their eyes. And they begin to beat him, spit on him, mock him. All the things that Jesus predicted a few chapters ago with his, his disciples. He's in full control. Full control. Has full authority in that room. And chooses that. And the scene cuts him. when we switch to Peter, who's below in the courtyard. Remember Peter, our boy, who says, I will never disown you. I will be your witness, even if it makes me a martyr. I will stand with you. I will associate myself with you. He's about to be tested. Is he willing to participate in fellowship in the sufferings of Christ or not? Because it's really safe and easy in the confines of a a room with the disciples to stand as he did in Mark chapter 8 and say, Jesus, you are the Messiah. But what happens when a little pressure is applied? I think you know the story. We just heard it read, and you're probably familiar with it already, that he does fail. And all it takes is a little servant girl. The lowest on the totem pole in society. She is his undoing. You, verse 67, were also with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. Something about Peter tipped this girl off to knowing that he belonged to Jesus. And before we keep going, I just want to kind of step aside and say, what, what an interesting question to reflect on. Is there anything in your world, in your life, in the way you spend your money, the way your calendar looks, the way you parent, the way you interact in your marriage, the way you serve at work, is there anything about those areas that would tip people off for you? Is there anything about you in your life that would make people look and say, you're with Jesus, aren't you? Something was for Peter. May have been just where he was from. May have been that she saw him. But he denies it. Again in verse 69, now she's accusing him in front of a whole bunch of other people. This fellow was one of them. Again he denies it. The other guys start to catch on in the in the courtyard. "Hey, no, surely you're one of them because you're a Galilean." And 71 says, he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man you are talking about. Interestingly enough, scholars point out that for him to call down curses is not just he starts using profanity, but he calls down curses. Those curses have to have an object. He has to put those curses on someone. And the way the grammar is, is he's not cursing himself. Who's he cursing? Most scholars believe that he's actually cursing Jesus in this moment. Is there any stronger way to distance yourself from someone than to curse them in the way that Peter does? Because no, no one would actually do that to their master. He's doing everything he can to distance himself from, from Jesus. And, and what, what happened? Why? Right? This, this moment of weakness, what is it that brings about this moment of weakness for, for Peter? It really seems like the fear of man takes over, doesn't it? The fear of others' opinions. The fear, the self-preservation nature. The fear of suffering. It's interesting what the fear of man actually is. Because the fear of man is actually forgetting who has true authority. Because it seems in that moment that the Sanhedrin have full authority in that room. In fact, Jesus is bound before them. He's on trial. There's more of them. They're the ones in the seat of authority. At least so it seemed. And in fact, in that moment... This little servant girl seems to have more authority than him because she could sway the whole courtyard. But what he seems to have forgotten in this moment, which is true of every moment where we give in to the fear of man and fear of people's opinion of us, is always in that moment we forget who has the true authority and we give too much authority to a person who is subject to the one who is truly in authority. You see, for Peter... And as we're going to see in a few moments for ourselves, there's often a disconnect between the theoretical and the functional. The things we say and we want to be true so bad in the way they actually live out in our lives. See, Peter knows, Jesus, you are the Messiah, and yet in this moment, Peter gave greater authority not to the Messiah, but to a little servant girl, and as a result, denied Jesus in order to preserve his own life verse 72 says, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him, that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It says that Peter broke down and wept. The most stunning piece about what happens in these moments are recorded, in my opinion, in Luke's gospel. If you were to jump over to Luke 22, you would see the same story being recounted, but Luke includes one detail. And it's that in this very moment, Jesus looks at Peter, and they make eye contact. The moment he has just denied Jesus the third time, Jesus looks at him and sees him. What look do you think Peter saw? This is a hugely important question for us. What look do you think that Peter saw in Jesus' eye in that moment? Because how you personally answer that question will reveal the nature of how you think God sees you. Was it, was it indignation, anger? How could you? Was it the condemning look of disappointment? I thought you knew better. Sinclair Ferguson said it was the look that Jesus gave him, that was Peter's salvation. For in those eyes he saw not condemnation, but compassion. And that that was the turning point in Peter's life. In this most painful and memorable of ways, Peter saw himself as he really was. He repented and was remade into the great disciple. The moment of Peter's greatest failure became his moment of greatest repentance. It became the most powerful tool in the hands of our Redeemer to do just that, to redeem Peter. Because Peter's unfaithfulness does not change Jesus' faithfulness. But the opposite is true that Jesus' faithfulness changed Peter and actually made him more faithful. This is how it works with God our unfaithfulness does not make him less faithful but his faithfulness to the very end is what has the power to transform us and make us faithful. It was the kindness and compassion that Jesus had for Peter that brought about the change in his life. And we know this for a couple of reasons. Number one, if you look at some of the other Gospels, we see that after Jesus is raised from the dead, he explicitly goes to Peter and redeems him three times. Peter denied him publicly three times. Jesus publicly restores Peter three times. But there's something that stays in the book of Mark that shows us that Peter's denial did not have the last word over him. It did not define who he is. And it's the fact that we have the book of Mark. Because the book of Mark is a retelling of Peter's story. You won't find a single thing in the book of Mark that Peter is not present for, either as a part of the group or just him personally. This is Peter's first-hand eyewitness account. Who would have the courage to out themselves as the one who failed Jesus except one who had been redeemed by that same Jesus, who had seen that his failures did not define him and have final word over him but that Jesus does. One who experienced grace and, condem- and, and forgiveness instead of condemnation. That's so what changes a person. It's his repentance, I'm sorry, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Peter's unfaithfulness did not change Jesus' faithfulness, but Jesus' faithfulness changed Peter. Ultimately to the point where, as Jake mentioned last week, Peter would eventually go to give his very life for the name of Jesus. Here's the thing. Just like Peter, every single one of us is on trial each day. The world is watching. We know that. And in our own hearts, we want to follow him. We, like Peter, say, I will not deny you. Lord, I will never deny you again. Even if it means I have to die for you. We want to be his witnesses. We want to associate ourselves with him and represent him well as those who bear his name. I remember growing up, for some reason in high school, this question was asked everywhere. And I I kind of obsessively thought about it. The question was this, if someone put a gun to your head and said, do you believe in Jesus? What would you say? And inside the confines of youth group, the answer was, yes, Peter, I got you just like you. Even if I have to die for you, Jesus, I would never deny you. And then hours later, when I'd be out playing with my friends and my family would say, hey, it's time to go to church. Boy, I threw a little hissy fit. And I blamed my parents for having to take me to anything church related. I'd do what Peter did. And I worked effectively to distance myself from Jesus or his church. And boy, would I love to say that that was just kind of that high school thing, you know? I'd love to sit back and just be able to say that, well, that was a a young me or young us, and yet the reality is, even if you have not explicitly denied Him with your mouth, the reality is you have at some level functionally denied Christ in your own life as a believer, as one who wants desperately to follow Him. Maybe you've actually been in a spot where somebody has asked you explicitly, are you a Christian? Do Do you go to church somewhere? And maybe you have outright denied that. And this passage doesn't need any translation for you at all. It's one-to-one in your mind. But maybe for others of us, we need to understand that there are ways that we can functionally not deny Jesus in a place where our words our theoretical, don't actually match up to our functional. Because you can deny him in many other ways. Much of it happens through no words at all and through silence. Maybe at work you shyly step out of the spotlight when a situation of faith arises where you might jeopardize your reputation to to, to live or to speak in such a way that represents Christ and claims allegiance to Him above all else. Or you deny Him when you know the good you ought to do but don't do it. When the Spirit prompts you to, to speak a word about Jesus explicitly, to share the gospel, to speak His name And you refuse because the moment wasn't right. Or maybe we functionally deny him by by turning into chameleons, which is just another way of saying people-pleasing. Conforming the way you act, think, talk in light of the surrounding so you blend in a bit more. Where all of a sudden the, the God bless you brothers from Sunday morning turn into something totally different another day of the week. And your language becomes crude and and the things you joke about are off color and, you know, fill in the blanks. Or you change your opinion on cultural topics depending on who's around you. And you choose safety because of the fear of man's opinions. Maybe you just functionally deny his authority in your life by sin. That every sin is an act of denial of Christ's authority over you, that gossip at the water cooler or over the fence with the neighbors so you get a little more relational cred. Sexual sin, whether that's pornography or even within your marriage, selfishly using your spouse's body as a way to please yourself at their expense. It could be with your time. It could be with your money, treating it as if your own and and not bothering to give to the local church or to the global kingdom giving into your compulsions, sort of anger or sharp tongue harshness, not giving thanks and glory to God, but claiming the, the success in your life for yourself. You, you realize we can just keep going, right? Functionally, we very much like Peter, deny Christ on a regular basis, even when we try so hard to not. So the question is, what's the hope? What's the hope for those of us who do that? And the hope is found in seeing that these two trials are happening simultaneously. I told you earlier that the the way Mark put his intro together is made for us to see these two stories happening at the exact same moment. So while Peter is vehemently denying the truth that he's ever been associated with Jesus three times, what is Jesus doing? He's standing silent as lies and accusations are thrown against him falsely. Here's how I imagine this working out. This is just me. This is, not, uh, this is my uh, creative understanding as to how that might have happened. The servant girl looks at him and says, Peter, hey, I, you're with him, aren't you? And Peter denies it. And at the very same moment, Jesus is standing being accused falsely by people who couldn't even coordinate their stories. And he remains silent. And at the very same moment that the girl follows him and says to those around her, this fellow is one of them, as he's denying it, it is the very same moment that the high priest says to Jesus, aren't you going to answer these people and their accusations against you? And Jesus remains silent. At the very same moment that Peter hears from the group around him in the courtyard, surely you're one of them, and he begins to curse and say, I don't even know that man, is the very same moment that Jesus says, I am the Messiah and you will see me the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one coming in the clouds of heaven and he's called a blasphemer these two stories are happening at the exact same time which is that at the moment of Jesus at the moment of Peter's greatest failure is the moment that Jesus stands representing Peter and he doesn't even know it because this is the mystery of the love of God that while you and I may be functionally denying him over and over again, what is he doing at the exact same moment? He's standing again, but this time he's not silent. Because Romans 8 tells us that no one can condemn us because Jesus who has died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for you now. First John 2 describes Jesus as an advocate. Another way to understand an advocate is a defense attorney. That Jesus, the moments that you are functionally denying him, he's also standing, but this time he's not silent. This time he's standing before the judge with a case to bring, and his case is not like, oh, give him another chance. Just show mercy. He's not asking for mercy, he's asking for justice. 1 John chapter 1 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful, that he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. So when Jesus stands before the judge as your defense attorney, while you're functionally denying him, even when you want so badly to not, he's not standing there saying, come on, give the guy a break. He's saying, no, 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 justice has already been served. Remember when I stood silent and I bore on myself that payment right there, that functional denial of me, That's paid for. Do you know how unjust it would be to pay for the same sin twice? We've been shown mercy, but the case is sound. It would be unjust for you to be punished for something that Christ has already taken for you, which is why we just sang. Earlier this morning, that when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I love that, the, that song, Before the Throne of God, doesn't go, it never happened, he's making up lies. No, it did happen. The enemy often points to things that are legit in our lives. But the song goes on to say, in that moment, upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. And for so long, when I heard those lines, I would always think about the cross but that's not, where we're up, that's not where we're upward eye looking. That was terrible grammar. That's not where we're looking upward to. Because he's not on the cross right now. He is at the right hand of the Father, pleading and interceding for you. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You see, your unfaithfulness doesn't change God's faithfulness. But Jesus' faithfulness to you does change you. And the question that I have is, how do you respond to a kindness and a mercy like that? Do you respond with callous indifference? (laughs) It's not that big a deal. Jesus is going to forgive me, right? Friends, if that's your response to your denial of him and his compassionate mercy towards you, you need to check yourself. but if what your denial of Him is brings you remorseful repentance, then praise God. He is at work in your life. 2 Corinthians 7 says that there is a godly sorrow. How do you know if it's godly sorrow or worldly sorrow? Godly sorrow always leads you to repentance. It leads you into the light. It leads you into forgiveness and freedom. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance because as the followers of God who have been empowered by his spirit, that is not the norm. That is not acceptance. We don't just go, well, it's just where we are. Not a big deal. Is it possible for you to functionally deny him in moments of weaknesses? Absolutely. Do we embrace that? Do we just become comfortable in that place? No, we return over and over again because repentance is not a one-time thing. Repentance is quite honestly like maybe every two minutes and that's probably not often enough. Here's the amazing thing. Not only does Jesus' silence guarantee us justice in the cosmic court, but he's done one better. Because the question for me is like, okay, if that's true, that's great, but how do I move into this world not just resting on the fact that Jesus will forgive me. But how do I, how do I, I want deep in my soul to represent him well. I want to be his witness. And this is where we have to fast forward a little bit to where Jesus has been crucified. He's been raised again and he's standing in front of his disciples and he's about to ascend to his place at the right hand of the Father. And he says this to them, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. Because the good news is not only is there mercy for you, but there's power available for you. There's power available to you in the presence of the Spirit of God inside of you. So that as you walk, His power, the resurrected Christ, the Spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead is now in you. And that has final word. And that gives you. That has the ability. His presence and his working in your life, as you learn to walk with him, as you learn to repent, as you learn to come back, as you soak yourself in his presence. That's what has the ability to turn faithless into faithful. And he does it little bit by little bit. See, Jesus went into utter, into his trial, utterly alone so that as you and I walk through trials of life, we will never be alone. And we have His Spirit. As we meditate on His Word, as we spend time with Him, may God help us. May God help us to represent Him well, to not functionally deny Him, and when we do, to turn to Him because in that moment, we will find help. We will find mercy in our time of need. Let's pray together. Father, you know our weaknesses. You know our failures. Even the ones that haven't happened yet. And yet you love us the same. You remain faithful to us. So that as Second Timothy 2 says, even if we are faithless, you remain faithful. For you cannot disown and deny yourself. And you have put your name on us. Father, change us. Lord, we need you. We need your empowerment. We need your spirit to lead us, to guide us, to change us. May we walk with him, give us ears to hear his leading, encourage to follow him. And we know that when we ask you for help, that that's a prayer you delight to answer. That we are not a burden to you, that you delight to come to us, to help us, to change us. Do that for your glory for our good, for our joy. And Lord, the world around us is watching. Do it for them. Change us so that we might be a blessing to the world around us. That others, that our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends might come to know and to love and worship you as God. We give you praise this morning in Jesus' name, amen.